Why does God say that a whole family can be punished for the sins of one person? Why did Ezekiel cut off his beard and throw the pieces up in the air? And what are some of the main ways that God judges sin? I'll give you seven of them and also answer those other questions today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and logician, and I'll explain why today. Last week on Sunday, while we were having church, our toddler was brought to my wife crying. He had been down in the little kid's classroom, and Sunday school was just finishing up, and he had fallen and gotten hurt. Now, it was not some major injury. I think he had a scratch on his stomach or something like that. As soon as he saw my wife, he calmed down pretty quick. She kissed his boo-boo, and then he was quickly back to class, fully mended by the miraculous power of mommy's kissing boo-boos. After church, my wife asked the teacher what had happened to him to, to make him fall. Apparently, he had decided to lead the class in a game of The floor is lava. About every day, he likes to yank all the pillows and cushions off the couches in our living room and throw them on the floor and declare that the floor is lava. Now, he's only three, so I'm not sure that he even knows what lava is, (laughs) but he knows how to play the game. And so he decided to teach the other kids, the other three-year-olds, that game. And then he ended up falling off a chair and learning that the floor is actually pretty solid. He learned another principle of life that day. It's called cause and effect. And maybe you remember learning about cause and effect as a kid. I remember being in the first grade and filling out papers that taught us cause and effect. Now, this was not hard. Uh, It was just something to help us think about the sequence of events, that if you do one thing, something else happens, and vice versa. When something happens, it's because someone did something. Nothing in life is random. Everything that happens is caused by a sequence of factors, usually rooted in some human decision. If you spread the chairs around the room and leap from one to the other like a professional stuntman, but you actually have the coordination of a three-year-old, the story ends with boo-boos getting kissed. That's called cause and effect. And the homework in these classes was pretty simple. A a glass of orange juice was spilled on on the floor in one frame, and another frame the kids were dancing around and acting silly while drinking juice, So one of those pictures depicted a cause, and the other one depicted an effect. And again, it's it's not that difficult. The homework was really just getting students to think in these terms, okay? And I I only wish they hadn't stopped teaching these things at such a young age, because it's learning to think logically. And that's why I called myself a logician earlier. I understand cause and effect. And apparently there's a lot of people in this world who actually don't. There's a lot of adults who think that the world is controlled by random forces. There are people who think that their actions carry no long-term consequences. There are people who think that sin, which is done in secret, will not have some carryover effect whenever you walk into the next room or make it to the next day. But the Bible shows us that our sins will find us out. There is nothing hidden that won't be brought to light. There will be an accounting for everything we do. Our sins are causes of effects that we might not see for days, weeks, months, or years, but the effects will eventually come. 
And this is the lesson that Israel's going to learn today. In, our, in the verses that we read, they actually learned it a long time ago. <laughs> but it's the lesson that Israel's going to learn when God allowed Babylon to besiege and conquer it. So today we're getting back into our Ezekiel series with chapter 5. We're actually going to cover the whole chapter today. I know, it, like, uh, the other chapters that we've covered so far, they've required at least two lessons to get through that, even one chapter sometimes, but um, at least at a minimum. But for this one, and for, I think, the next couple chapters, we're going to breeze through them pretty quickly. So, listen, if you remember from chapter 4, God had asked Ezekiel to act out the siege of Jerusalem, and this was to teach the Israelites that Jerusalem was going to fall, that this was an act of God's judgment, and it was because of Israel's rebellion over many years. So in chapter 4, we talked about the fact and the length and the severity of the siege. Today we're going to talk about the consequences of the siege. In fact, if I could do another word of the day in this lesson, the word of the day this time for chapter 5 would be consequences. Israel is going to learn that actions have consequences. And it's logical. It's cause and effect. Let's get into chapter 5 and find out what those consequences are. And at the end, we'll talk about what consequences mean for us today. Now, as I read these verses, remember that Ezekiel had set up a block on the town square and that this block represented Jerusalem. And that for 430 days, Ezekiel has been building little siege figures and letting them act out a siege on Jerusalem. And this was warning of a future judgment that was coming. And chapter 5 is just continuing that story that he started back in chapter 4. So to start with chapter 5, it says, And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city, when the days of the siege are completed, and a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city, and a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. And as we'll see, the hair represents the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jews, the hair was divided into three parts, and each of these parts is teaching us something that will happen to the people in Jerusalem. These are going to be three potential outcomes for the people in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is supposed to communicate these outcomes at the end of his 430 days of, of his sign, the sign act. Now, before I get to that, I just want to note where the hair is coming from. It's coming from Ezekiel's beard. Ezekiel is to cut off part of his beard and he's to use his own beard hairs, <laughs> sounds funny to say, but to use his own beard hairs to act this out. Now, I heard some commentaries on this. They made the claim that Ezekiel was a priest and that the Bible says priests are to never shave their beards. I tried to look that up. I couldn't actually find that anywhere in the Bible. Um, if you can, let me know. I know there's a thing about not cutting the edges of your beard, but I don't know where there's a rule that priests must always have full beards. I don't know. If you find that and want to let me know, you, you can send it to me. But anyway, here's one thing I do know um, about ancient Jewish culture is that all men, I mean, whether they were priests or not, all men in that time, they were proud of their beards, <laughs> like some men today. But that was a, just a cultural thing back then. You were proud of your beard. You see this in the story of David's men uh, when they were kidnapped, and they were not allowed to 
return home until their until their beards they so they were kidnapped and the person kidnapping them forcibly shaved their beards off. This is in Second Samuel like seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there, uh, maybe ten. Anyway, he forcibly shaved their beards off, and um, they were very ashamed when they came home without their beards. And David allowed those men to hide out and not actually return physically to home until their beards grew back because they didn't want to be, he didn't want them to be further humiliated. So, <laughs> so beards were a big deal back then. And sometimes still today, so, um, <laughs> late last year, I grew out a beard for No Shave November. And then it wasn't like a massive beard or anything. But anyway, people started, I noticed that they started treating me so much better after I grew it. <laughs> like, like I had just become a more mature person over the matter of a few weeks. They started treating me so much <laughs> like I was more mature or something. And I found that highly annoying because I would prefer to be treated equally, you know, whether I have a beard or not. I'm, I'm still the same guy, people. Try to look beyond the beard. But what I found out is there's a lot of people who will treat you better if you have a beard. So I've, I've kept it. I, you know, I haven't updated my picture yet on the podcast here, but just so you know, I have a beard now. If that helps you take my opinion any more seriously today, then there you go. The beard has spoken. So anyway, Ezekiel, he's supposed to take his beard hairs. That's a weird thing to say, but I don't know a better way to put it. His beard hairs, and he's supposed to do one of three things with them. More specifically, he's supposed to measure them out into thirds and do a different thing to each third. So for one third of the hairs, he's supposed to throw them straight into a fire. And if I understood it right, like the fire, it's supposed to be placed on the block that represents Jerusalem. I think that's, I think that what this represents is that one third of the people are actually going to be dead before the Babylonians even breached the walls of Jerusalem. One third are going to die in famine and pestilence during the siege. I don't think literally by fire, but one third of them will die just during the course of the long siege that leads up to the onslaught, which from history we know it lasted about 500 days. Then there's another third. Another third of the hares are to be struck with a sword. This means that when Babylon attacks... They are going to kill one-third of Jerusalem's inhabitants whenever they're conquering the city. And then the last third, the verses say, they are to be collected and hidden in Ezekiel's cloak. And this refers to one-third of the Jews in Jerusalem being taken captive. Now, this is not a happy ending. You know, even if they don't die by the sword. In fact, of the Jews being taken captive, God says, you know, even of those, take a few of them and throw them into the fire too. So even the Jews who are taken captive, they really, a lot of them have terrible fates awaiting them. Um, If you want to know what Babylonian captivity is like, just read the book of Daniel. Okay? (laughs) You'd probably rather take the sword than being thrown in a fiery furnace. Which, at least in Daniel, his friends, they had a miracle in the fiery furnace. But the Jews in Ezekiel's story, they should have no expectation of a miracle to save them. He's declaring their fate here. It's a decree from God. And it's not a good fate. These are the consequences of their sin. They've rebelled against God's law. Okay, as we covered in lesson number eight, they've rebelled for centuries and actions have consequences. And I want to point out one more thing from these verses, which I really appreciate. God tells Ezekiel to weigh out the hairs with a scale whenever he divides these up. He's telling Ezekiel, don't just eyeball it, but he wants him to use a scale. And why does God tell Ezekiel to do that? Well, I think God is communicating that his judgment, it's not just an emotional lashing out 
like he's just that God's just angry and letting the chips fall where they may. God's judgment is carefully considered, and he's saying that every terrible thing that comes to pass is being meticulously weighed and measured by God. Remember what I said before, nothing is random. It's cause and effect. So when the Babylonians come in, every slash of every sword, every day of Jerusalem's siege, this is all a proportional response to how Israel has treated God's word. Actually, I have to point out yet another thing here. Just want to make mention of a parallel here um, to the tribulation period. Because if you remember, so I'm a, here's the big words, I'm a premillennial dispensationalist, and that means I believe there's a seven-year tribulation coming, and that that's basically the end of the world. Um, and <laughs> it sounds kind of dire, but that's just, just the best way to put it. And for the last half of that period, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, what we'll see is that the Jews are majorly persecuted by the Antichrist during that time. So, um, the, and, and here's what I wanted to mention here. In the book of Zechariah, it says that in the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed by the Antichrist. Jesus warns them about this when he says in Matthew 24, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. And we can talk sometime on this podcast of what the abomination of desolation is. But th- this is halfway through the tribulation, and that's whenever things get really bad for the Jews. Two-thirds of all the Jews who are alive on earth at that time, they're going to be killed by the Antichrist. Just like two-thirds of the Jews in Jerusalem are going to be killed in the siege and the invasion by Babylon. Just like that, two-thirds of the Jews will be killed in the tribulation period. So the Antichrist is really, he truly will be worse than Adolf Hitler. Okay, you can kind of imagine why people once thought that Hitler himself was the Antichrist. But the real Antichrist will actually be even worse. So I just want to mention that here because that's why I do this podcast. I want to provide a source of information on Ezekiel from a dispensationalist perspective. Because a lot of commentaries out there, most commentaries don't do that. So that's what I'm here for. I see a parallel here with Ezekiel chapter 5 and with the end times that are spoken of in Revelation. Am I saying that Ezekiel 5 is actually about the, the, tribu- uh, the tribulation? No, that's not what I'm saying. Ezekiel's talking about stuff that's going to happen to Jerusalem, and it did happen 2,500 years ago. I'm just pointing out there's a parallel. There's a, there's a pattern. As you study the Bible, you see that God operates in a lot of patterns. Kind of like this judgment here that's divided into thirds. So I'm just pointing out the pattern here just so we can recognize it. All right, well, let's continue to the next verses. So this next section is verses 5 through 12. And this is a lot of verses here, so (laughs) buckle up. Ezekiel 5, verses 5 through 12. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations, and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst and in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, 
and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed by uh, consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheath the sword after them. And we've already explained about the hairs and the fire and all that. And this section of verses, it gets into the consequences of the siege. And it's kind of interesting to me that for the past month, as, as we've been talking on this on this podcast about siege warfare, and as we talk about chapters 4 and 5 of Ezekiel, um, also during the past month, we've witnessed the literal siege of the city of Kiev in Ukraine. Russia has tried for about a month to take that city, and they failed to do so, which I kind of find amazing. I don't, I don't know when you'll listen to this episode, but at this point in time, it appears that Vladimir Putin is pulling his forces back from Kiev, and he's going to focus on maybe taking different parts of Ukraine. So of all times in history, you know, for you listening, this could be for the first time in your life, we've been bearing witness to the siege of a city by an invading nation. And at the same time, on this podcast, we're talking about the siege of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 4 and 5. So I find that kind of a neat coincidence. Um, And as we read in history, and as we can observe in modern times, A siege is not necessarily a short battle. It can last for long periods of time. You know, people can hunker down in the city while they defend their territory, so they have a strategic advantage. But also, the invading army can cut off supplies of food and water to the city, and then the invaders have time on their side. And as we discussed, and as God warns Jerusalem in this chapter, the siege gets ugly inside the city. You know, it talks here about fathers eating their sons and and how we read that one-third of the city is going to die before Babylon even steps inside the walls. So a lot of the information here is kind of repeated from previous chapters, and I'm not going to go too deep into what it says. I mean, even the commentary that I was last reading on this section, it described this set of verses um, as not really organized as neatly as the rest of Ezekiel. It said this set of verses is really fragmented. It kind of reads like a lot of ideas being thrown together, so it doesn't flow as well as the rest of the book generally does. And I kind of I felt that way too. That's why I just read a big chunk of verses there so that we can just get the, the general feeling from them, the general idea, okay? The general idea here is that there are consequences to Israel's actions. God says, first of all, that he set Israel as the center of nations. And it's so interesting to me that this has been true for thousands of years, not just in Ezekiel's time, but if you look at, if you look at Israel on a map, Israel is a land bridge between three continents. So it's an important location for trade routes. Um, whoever controls Israel, they can control a lot of world territory just because it's it's kind of like a hinge of the world. Even in modern times, th- this has not changed up to today. Israel is an incredibly small nation land-wise, and it's not a big population center. It's an incredibly young nation when you consider that you know, it just restarted in 1948, and it, before that, it had not really existed as a nation for 2,500 years. And yet, today, it's got the 10th most powerful economy in the world. I mean, it's about the size of New Jersey. And in, in 75 years' time, it has grown into the 10th most powerful economy in the world. I mean, even if someone didn't believe in the Bible, 
they, they would have to look at Israel and the history of the Jewish people and recognize that, you know, they have got something supernatural going on with that country. Now, on that note, something interesting to me about this section of Scripture is that it borrows a lot of phrases from Leviticus 26. If you remember Leviticus 26, that's the chapter that we went to in our last study. That was in chapter in chapter 4. We were talking about the 430 days. If you haven't gone back and listened to that one, go do it. Someone messaged me afterwards, and they said that they found it mind-blowing. So go, go give that a listen. I think it also... It gives more evidence here that I was on the right track when I gave my interpretation of the 430 days because when I gave my explanation of what it meant, I was relying on a phrase that was used repeatedly in Leviticus 26. It was about punishing Israel sevenfold. Then whenever you get to Ezekiel 5, Ezekiel quotes repeatedly from other phrases in that same chapter, Leviticus 26. So I think it gives further evidence that we had it right in that episode. Uh, That was episode 18. And also, I came to another random realization after that episode. This is kind of a random thought I'm going to throw out. So as we mentioned there, Israel was kept out of its land for 2,520 years as we covered. Okay? From the invasion of Babylon until May of 1948, that was 2,520 biblical years. And I just, so just this past week, I was doing the math on the seven-year tribulation you want to know how many days there are in the seven-year tribulation? 2,520. If you go by the biblical years, as we talked about before, it's 2,520 days. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I just found it really interesting. Okay. Back to these verses here. Verse 11 uses a phrase that God said his eye will not pity um, when when Israel's in its day of judgment, if you remember that, is in verse 11. It's a particular phrase that God actually used to tell Israel this phrase whenever he would tell them, like, to enact the death penalty on someone. He would say, your eye shall not pity them whenever you put them to death. In other words, don't hold back, follow through. If they do something deserving of the death penalty, put them to death and your eye shall not pity them. And here, God is using that same phrase on Israel. In fact, God uses that phrase seven times in the book of Ezekiel. I just thought it was worth mentioning because of the number seven. And then verse 12, it also has something that's really interesting to me. Ezekiel uses the phrase pestilence, famine, and sword. This is a grouping of three ways that God judges that the Bible uses a lot. And, you know, if you read the prophets a lot, you're going to see this phrase repeated. Pestilence, famine, and sword. Pestilence, famine, and sword. Pestilence, famine, and sword. So just a note on that. I was just thinking about that in terms of America. So we were just hit with a two-year pestilence, okay? The pandemic, that would be an example of pestilence, a sickness that just washes through the nation. And many people have asked if things like coronavirus, if they were mentioned in the Bible, well, that would fall under the category of pestilence. Like coronavirus wasn't specifically mentioned, but Jesus did say pestilences would come. So... Then the next thing in the trifecta of of judgment that I was mentioning before, pestilence, famine, and sword. So the next thing would be famine. And I just want to mention something here. It's actually been in the news this past week that President Biden is warning of food shortages that are coming. So maybe America will face a famine next, perhaps. Okay. Now, as far as pestilences and famines go, you know, coronavirus and food shortages, 
those are pretty small potatoes. Like, I don't think people are going to be starving in the streets of America. I don't think that's what's coming. I'm just kind of pointing out we just see some parallels there. As I've been saying, America is a post-Christian nation similar to Ezekiel um, or Israel in the book of Ezekiel, how Israel was in rebellion to God. So if we're getting two of the three judgments that Israel got, I'm just wondering now, could the sword be on the way next? <laughs> you know, meaning some kind of attack on our country. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. You know, I just throw these ideas out, you know, to scare you. <laughs> just kidding. But um, I just throw these out because I, I find it kind of interesting that we start to see these parallels and patterns even in our own lives. All right, let's look at the last set of today's verses. Ezekiel 5, verses 13 through 17. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy, when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you, and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury, and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord, I have spoken. This wraps up the sign that started back at the beginning of chapter 4. Chapters 4 and 5 are really a whole unit of Ezekiel's sign of what will happen to Jerusalem. It started with making the brick and the figures out on the town square, and everybody who passed by would have seen his models and probably wondered what that was all about. And then he lied on his side for 430 days, and this was to signify that God was against this city and sending this invading army. And then God talked about the severity of the siege, and in this chapter, it was devoted to the consequences of the whole thing. All these results are the consequences of Israel's actions. They were the cause, and now they are going to feel some effects. So this isn't random. God is not emotionally unstable. These are coolly calculated consequences. So here's how I'd like to talk about this set of verses that I just read. I, I tried to think of all the ways that God judges sin in the Bible. You know, God's judgment does not always look the same way. So I tried to think of all the different ways that God judges sins in kind of a general sense. I'm not looking at things that were clearly intended to be like one-time things that were specific to one situation. I'm looking at the general patterns that God uses. And most of these seven, they show up in the verses that I just read. Now, not every single one, but anyway, I went ahead and included all seven that I could come up with. Just to, just to be comprehensive, I'm going to give you them all. Um, so if you find another one, if you can think of another one that I didn't think of, send it my way. I'll give you the email address later, but I'd love to, I'd love to hear more feedback from people on this. I just came up with seven. I kind of like going with seven, like the number seven, cause it's such a biblical number. So it comes up a lot, especially in Ezekiel. Anyway, <clears throat> number one of seven ways that God judges sin. Number one that I would point out is the natural consequences of wrongdoing. And I started with this one because this is the first effect that we tend to face when we do something wrong. And it's actually not even God's personal judgment on us whenever we're facing the natural consequences of doing wrong. That's why it's called the natural consequence, okay? So this is like when you tell a lot of lies 
and no one believes what you say anymore, or say you sleep with someone that you're not married to and you get an STD. Now, if that happens, these are not God punishing you. These are the natural consequences of your actions, cause and effect. So I know my first way that God punishes us is, <laughs> is a way that God actually doesn't punish us, but I, it kind of fits though in the theme of what I'm talking about here. So I wanted to get this one out of the way first. This is, this is the cause and effect thing, the natural consequence of wrongdoing. And God warns us about that stuff, okay? If you read Proverbs, it's all about natural ramifications. It's not a catalog of divine judgment. It's just the natural consequences. There's the word again for today. The natural consequences of what happens if you do something unwise or wrong. So the number one way today that God judges sin it's not actually an example of God judging sin, but I want you to be aware of it. It's the natural consequences of wrongdoing. So the number one way today that God judges sin is, is not technically God judging sin, but I do want you to be aware of it because it, it is something that we face if we do wrong. Number two, facing God's punishment while on earth. So this means bad things happening to us, <laughs> to put it bluntly. It's not usually as dramatic as what is happening to Israel, you know, in these verses we read today. But God can cause bad things to happen to us as a recompense for a sin that we haven't repented of. Okay, for example, in 1 Corinthians, God says that some of the Christians, they have gotten sick and some of them have even died because they weren't taking communion properly. Jesus makes some threats to some of the churches in the book of Revelation. That's where he opens with his seven letters to the seven churches. And, um, and one more note on this, uh, just to, to add something further, to be technical here. If you are an unbeliever, God's judgment is called punishment. And the focus on that is justice for the wrongdoing. Now, if you are a believer, God's judgment on you is called discipline. The purpose of discipline is not justice, because Jesus has already received your justice, the purpose of discipline is corrective because God's trying to improve you, to sanctify you, to make you more Christ-like, to purify you, to get that sin out of your life. There could be a whole episode I do on that distinction, but maybe someday down the road. I'm going to stop here before I get carried away. But number two today, that's whenever you face God's punishment while on earth. Punishment or discipline. Number three, eternal punishment in the afterlife, also known as hell. And this isn't mentioned in the Ezekiel verses for today, but I have to mention it because it's the final judgment that awaits those who are not saved. So for a Christian, um, you don't have to worry about hell necessarily, but you do have some afterlife judgments, which could be a loss of your eternal rewards. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. Unbelievers face something known as the great white throne judgment, which is eternal suffering in hell. So that's the third type of punishment today. Number four, making an example out of you for others. The fourth type of judgment of God today is when God uses you to teach other people a lesson. God mentions this in verse 15 that we read where, this is where he said, you will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury. He makes these comments to tell Israel that the other people, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna say, oh wow, we don't wanna end up like Israel. We don't want to let what happened to Israel happen to us. Or, you know, they might just mock you and make fun of you. And <laughs> you don't want to be the butt of jokes for centuries, which is what literally happened to Israel. 
So number four, that's when God makes you an example of what not to do. And, and you know, everyone who hears your name shakes their head and is ashamed to even know you. That would be number four. Number five, whenever your children feel the consequences of your actions. And this is going to sound very unfair, I know. But God actually says that whenever you sin, God says in the Bible a few times that the sins can be felt to the fourth generation. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. I just want to make something clear. God doesn't hold children responsible for the sins of their parents. God doesn't punish kids for what their parents did. However, God warns that when he judges the parents, that the kids will be affected by that, sometimes for generations. Okay? Let me give you a simple example. Let's say that there's a father who is an alcoholic. Well, if the father is an alcoholic, his whole family is going to suffer. Now, let's say he dies in a drunk driving accident. Well, his kids then are going to deal with the consequences of his alcoholism. And God warns Israel in the verses that we read today that the children are going to pay the price for the actions of their parents and their grandparents and their ancestors. It's not that God is mad at the kids, but, you know, whenever you destroy a city or a nation, guess what? There are going to be some kids in it who get caught up in the chaos. And that's just a sad, tragic reality. Remember what we read in verse 17. I will send the famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. And other verses in the Bible, they talk about the sins being visited on the third and fourth generation. And we say, what's that all about? Well, if you look back back then based on life expectancies and how people lived, you know, you, they lived with their families. On an average, you would have a household with three to four generations living in each household. So if the patriarch of the household is then punished, that will instantly have ramifications for three or four generations. And it doesn't mean that 40 years after you're dead that God's tracking down your grandkids <laughs> and punishing them for something that you did back whenever you were alive. Well, no, what it means is that, well, this is what God's really meaning here. He's trying to get their attention and say, when you do something wrong and you invite God's judgment on you, it doesn't just affect you. It also affects all the people that you are responsible for. So something to keep in mind. Number six, I call this one the mental block. This is whenever you're too hard-headed about something to see reality, okay? It can be based on pride or loving a sin or not wanting to admit whenever you're wrong. It's usually pride that causes a mental block, um, that causes someone to not see the truth right in front of their face. One recurring element of God's judgment is that God, he actually respects the mental block. <laughs> in fact, God strengthens the mental block sometimes. God says, oh, you don't want to see the truth? I'll give you over to a depraved mind. I'll harden your heart. I'll send you a strong delusion so that you believe a lie. So God actually respects our desires and he will not force himself on anyone. He will actually give you what you want. So if you desire to reject him, if you desire to love sin, God will harden your heart. This is really dangerous for people because if you harden your heart to God and he withdraws from you, well, then what's going to get you saved at that point? Like I was trying to think today, what gets you saved if you harden your heart to God? Or if you love sin and God hardens his heart, hardens your heart toward him, what hope do you have? I was thinking if maybe if someone's praying for you, that God might reach back out. But other than that, I really don't know. When you harden your heart to God, when you do that long enough, you have nothing awaiting you except hell. And it's a very dangerous place to be. 
Number seven today, the last one, it's whenever God withholds his hand of protection from you. And this is kind of like number one, where you deal with the natural consequences of your actions. Except in this one, what I'm saying is God will just take his hand of protection off of you. And that will allow bad people then, or the devil, to do what they want with you. You see, a lot of the blessings that we enjoy, we don't even realize it. But we enjoy them because God has put his hand of protection on us to keep us from harm. And whenever we sin, even if God doesn't like personally bring about some kind of judgment, he might just take his hand of protection off of, say, off of our home, off of our finances, off of our safety, and he will allow something else to come in and afflict us. And in the end, it's, you know, it's basically the same effect. Israel in this story, they lost God's hand of protection. And now the Babylonians are going to be allowed to do whatever they want with Israel. And if Israel had stayed true to God, God would have prevented the Babylonians from taking their city. And Israel didn't play this smart because over the past hundred years, meaning back then, over their past hundred years, Babylon has been increasing in might and in size, and they were conquering nations left and right. Israel should have been looking at their situation and been drawing nearer to God. Instead, Israel pushed God away. And now, they're going to face the consequences for that. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and get into some personal application of this chapter. Um, If you have a question on this chapter, leave a comment or shoot us an email. It's crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Um, If you have some more ways that God judges sin that that I forgot today, just let me know. You know, I don't claim that all seven I covered today are the only seven. That was just the seven that I could come up with. Next time on this podcast, we're going to spend two weeks on a current issue. Okay, something you've probably heard about a lot in the news, I'm sure. It's called critical race theory. Now, when you hear that, For some people, they're like, what is it? And a lot of people think they know what it is and they actually don't. (laughs) So we're going to go through it based on the words of the people who teach critical race theory. And we're going to ask this question, is it compatible with Christianity? I'm going to discuss that next time. And that is such a big subject matter that I'm probably going to need at least two episodes on it. So look for that to come in episodes 21 and 22. And then in episode 23... We'll be back in Ezekiel and looking at chapter 6. And that's a really short chapter. So I expect us, kind of like today, I think we'll get through that whole chapter in just one episode. Today, just to recap, we covered Ezekiel 5, which also wrapped up the sign act that Ezekiel started in chapter 4. His 430 days on his side, (laughs) they are over now. He's explained the meaning of all these things to the Jews who were present. Now, as a reminder... Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He's not saying these things to the people in Jerusalem. He's talking to the Jews at Tel Aviv. He's informing them that the worst is yet to come. Okay, Jerusalem will fall. They are not coming to bail you out. Israel is done. Babylon is taking over. When Jerusalem falls, one third are going to be killed on the spot. One third are going to be taken captive. And the other third, they're already going to be dead just because they were starved out before Babylon even came in. So there are dark days ahead. 
And uh, the, the, he's saying that for, so, so the Israelites are aware of this. Um, the first half of the book of Ezekiel, the first 24 chapters, they are a little bit dreary, okay? There's a lot of judgment, doom, and gloom, okay? Pestilence, famine, and sword. <laughs> We're going to hear stuff like that because there's a lot of doom and gloom being prophesied over the Israelites here. Um, and that's kind of a recap of the past couple chapters and what we talked about today. Let me share some application of the seven ways that God judges. Uh, let's review those seven ways. And I want to give some examples of how God might apply these methods in modern times. Okay? So number one, the natural consequences of wrongdoing. And this one, again, this is not God's direct intervention in your life. We already kind of covered some modern examples of this. Like if you sleep around, you'll probably get STDs or undesired pregnancies. That's not God punishing you. Okay? And I want to make that clear because a lot of people make a bad decision and then when they face the consequences, they're like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why didn't you save me from this? Well, you know, that's not God. That's you. That's cause and effect. <laughs> There's like this, this meme, one of those pictures on, online where someone is saying, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. And that basically sums it up. You know, if you become a Christian, that's great because it saves your soul. But, you know, we still have to face the consequences of our actions. If you committed a crime, you know, it's great for you to come to awareness of your sinfulness and ask for God's forgiveness. God can forgive you for your sins in the supernatural, but you might still have to face some jail time in the natural. Those are just the natural consequences of wrongdoing. Okay, number two, facing God's punishment while on earth, aka discipline. If you're a believer, Okay, if you're an unbeliever, then punishment would be a better word. Uh, we actually gave a modern example of this too. When I say modern, I was talking about New Testament because we're in New Testament times. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, talking about communion. Paul wrote, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. They took communion improperly, and it says some of them actually got sick and died. So God can punish us or afflict us with something because of our sinfulness, okay? Even if you're a Christian, and it doesn't mean you don't go to heaven. Um, like, I believe the Christians who died in those verses, I believe they still went to heaven, but their lives were cut short because of their sinfulness. They were doing something that offended God, and whenever they didn't repent, he just removed them from this earth. Now listen, I'm not claiming today that anybody who gets sick or that anybody who dies young, that that means they're being punished by God. Not all sickness is God's punishment. Okay, probably not most of it. I just throw out the possibility that it can be. Number three, eternal punishment in the afterlife. Okay, this could mean hell. For the Christian, it could mean loss of rewards. Now, hell is kind of self-explanatory. Okay, if you die without the salvation that's offered in Jesus, you would go to hell. Pretty simple. For the Christian, we have eternal rewards for our good works that are waiting for us in heaven. We earn rewards by doing good things, like following the Bible and so forth. Whenever we sin, however, we lose rewards. Doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, we just lose rewards, okay? There's more on that in 1 Corinthians 3. Number four, this one was about making an example out of you to others. Whenever you're a Christian, okay, whenever you have a reputation— as someone 
who follows God, kind of like Israel did in the Old Testament. They were a beacon of God's light to the world, or they were supposed to be, right? Their reputation was that they followed the God of Abraham, and they declared him to be the one true God, and that no other God even existed. That's a big claim, especially for back then. So therefore, whenever they acted badly, as God said here in the verses today, they were acting worse than some of the other nations. God was forced to make an example out of them. And it was all a matter of protecting God's own name. That's why God said back in verse 13, And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. It became a matter of protecting God's reputation when Israel tried to sin and then just get away with it. And I believe that God treats the Christian the same way. I've had this talk with like many Christians before. When they do something that worldly that worldly people do all the time, but for some reason it seems like the Christian, when they try it, they get slapped down pretty hard. <laughs> they, they might face some really severe consequences for doing something that you know other people just get away with. Now, why is that? I mean, I think that's a real phenomenon. I, I think it's true that Christians face tougher consequences. I don't think that's just all in our head. I think when that happens, God is saying, I'm not going to let my own kids act that way. I think God is going to be tougher on us than he will be on the rest of the world. Because, you know, whenever you follow God, you are seen as an example. But God says, whenever you follow me or claim to follow me, you will be an example. You can be a good example or a bad example. And that's just really up to you. But you will be an example. You can be an example of what to do or an example of what not to do. And what happens whenever you do what you shouldn't. You know, it's your choice. But you are going to be one or the other. Number five, that's whenever your children feel the consequences of your actions. Now, I think this one has already been explained pretty well. Um, I used the example of an alcoholic, like a drunk driver. You know, really, the greatest application here is just to remember that if you are responsible for someone else or for multiple people, then the consequences of your sins, they are magnified by that. So if a teen lies to his boss or does something really bad at work and gets fired, then, you know, obviously that's bad. Hopefully he learns his lesson from that. But if a grown man who's taking care of a family steals from work and and gets caught and loses his job, well, then that becomes a much worse situation. So you got to keep that in mind. Number six, um, that's the mental block one, okay? And I feel like I encounter that one on a daily basis. I'll spend a little bit of time talking about this one. When someone is facing a mental block, uh, I, you know, you see this if you just look at the headlines, pick up a newspaper. The so-called experts are wrong about everything. Like their ideas are terrible. The elites who run this country, they're, they're ruining it. And you might say, what does that have to do with a mental block? We are seeing Romans chapter 1 play out right before our eyes. Like look at what's happened to our country over the past 30 years Tell me if you don't see Romans 1 coming to life as I read these words. Let me just read a little bit here from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals, and creeping things. Now, in our day, like, we haven't just exchanged the truth of God for an idol or an animal. We've embraced the idea that no God exists whatsoever. Now, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Only 3% of the population is atheist. Yeah, but there's this attitude of secularism amongst all of society. There's an attitude that atheism is just seen as the default in our, in our country. So religion is kept out of schools. It's scorned in the workplace. The idea is that you can have your religion, but that you have to leave it at home whenever you go out into society and basically be a functional atheist in all matters of government and law and education. As Billy Graham said one time, our society is terrified of offending anyone except God. Romans says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me ask you this. Has mankind ever created a society that followed the lusts of his heart and dishonored their bodies more than today? I'll, I mean, maybe the Romans did, but this is the point. Look at what happened to them. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, or as some translations say it, a depraved mind. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. One of the effects of a society that rejects the knowledge of God is that it embraces homosexuality. And as you look at what's happened in America for the past couple of generations, we're there. Like we have redefined marriage. We've declared that we know better than God. And so therefore, we've seen these effects of what it said in Romans 1. God puts a mental block in people's minds that they will believe anything. And you look today, transgenderism is exploding. And people are not just doing the transgender with gender, they're identifying as dogs and cats. <laughs> literally, I mean this literally. People are making up new genders and new sexualities every single day. Florida, they just signed a law this week that banned sexual education in third grade and below. And there's a large group of people in this country who are actually upset about that. I'm like, why is that not a law in all 50 states? <laughs> and as, far, as far as Florida goes, why is it only for third grade and below? Our society has been given over to a depraved mind. If you don't believe me, just look at TikTok. Like, you know, I kind of feel like that's all I need to say. TikTok, and there you go. <laughs> and and the, the elites, the people in charge of running this country, the so-called experts, they get everything wrong. They believe some of the most ludicrous things. And, and yet they're touted as the intellectuals. And when a lot of them have a depraved mind, and that isn't even the extent of the mental block that we're going to see. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes that God is going to send a strong delusion on the people in the tribulation to believe the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we might say, God... Why would you help people to believe what the Antichrist says? 
And it gives you the reason right there in the verses, because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Therefore, part of their punishment is that they will believe the Antichrist. They'll receive a strong delusion, which implies to me that some of the things that the Antichrist says, they're going to be so ridiculous that like if you or I were to hear them today, we would say, who would ever believe such a thing? Well, they'll be ridiculous, but God is going to send the people a delusion that they will need in order to believe it. And frankly, I think we kind of see that already today. Like if you went back 10 or 20 years, the idea that a man could be a woman, that a man could be a cat, that there's more than two genders, those ideas would have been laughed out of the room. But what do we have today? There are large swaths of the population who believe this junk. At the middle school in a, in a nearby town to where I live, teenagers over there are identifying as cats and meowing in the halls. Now, it's like you look around at the world today and it's like, what is going on? There is a spiritual fog that people are in. Now, the light of the word of God can't illuminate it. I mean, that's the only thing that can bring spiritual clarity in this present darkness. But if people choose to reject the Bible, the Bible says that God will allow them this delusion. Okay, that was, I spent a lot of time on number six. I have a lot of thoughts on that one. <laughs> Let's talk about number seven before we go. The last one today, that's whenever God withdraws his hand of protection that rests on each one of us. You know, you see, we don't even realize this as we go about our day-to-day -day life, how much God is watching over us, how his angels surround us and protect us from harm. And I believe that whenever we get to heaven someday, we're going to be shocked whenever we find out how much that God did for us that, that we didn't even know. Well, whenever we're living a righteous life, I think of that as living under God's umbrella of protection. Okay? If you just imagine an umbrella, we're safe under there. Now, it's not that nothing bad will ever happen to us, but it's more like the minimum number of bad things will happen. Okay? We aren't doing anything to cause unnecessary problems for ourselves. We aren't doing anything to invite God's judgment on us. However, if we willfully sin, we step out from under God's umbrella of protection. And whenever we do that, well, now we invite all kinds of problems into our lives. Here's an example of that from the book of Malachi. Okay, it talks about tithing in Malachi chapter 3, where God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God tells the people there to pay your tithes. And he says, if you do so, he will rebuke the devourer. That means God is saying, I will stop a tornado from destroying your crops. I will stop a drought from choking out your vineyards. I will stop natural disasters with supernatural protection. However, if you don't tithe, God says that he will withdraw his hand of protection. It's not that he's sending you a drought or a tornado now. It's just he's not going to protect you from those things when they come. Now, I know most of you listening, you probably don't have <laughs> fields to glean from or vineyards. I mean, maybe you do. But I know most of us today, we don't live like in an agricultural society like ancient Israel did. So how do we apply this to modern times? Okay, what does this mean to us today? Well, I'd say maybe 
if you haven't paid your tithes for a few months and then you get a flat tire, um, you know, like maybe you've been skipping tithes for a few months, trying to keep a few extra hundred dollars that the Bible says belong to God, but you're trying to keep them for yourself. Well, maybe God allows you to get a flat tire then. Bam, that's 200 bucks. And then the tire shop requires you to buy four tires, right? <laughs> so there, there's 800 bucks. So instead of the $800 going to your church and getting you a blessing, now you owe, you owe $800 to a tire shop and you're going to miss a few days of work while you're waiting on those tires to come in. And it's possible all this could happen to you and you will never make the mental connection between a flat tire and not paying your tithes, you know, unless you pray about it and God reveals that to you. So <laughs> but probably what we're praying is, oh God, why'd you allow this to happen to me? You know, <laughs> the, the way that we do. So let me ask you, do you want God's blessing on your home and your finances? Do you want God's protection? If so, pay your tithes, okay? Stay under God's protective umbrella. And the umbrella of protection thing, that's not all about money. I'm, I'm just giving one example of it here because it's just kind of fresh on my mind because I just taught on tithing in my Sunday school last week. So that's why I'm going to that example. But it's, it's about more than just money. But we want to stay under God's umbrella of protection and not do anything to withdraw his hand of protection from us. Okay, so there you go. That's seven ways that God judges sin. And that covers Ezekiel 5. Israel was about to face the consequences of its actions in a variety of ways. You see, our sins, they accumulate a debt with God. And eventually, that debt grows so large that God must act. God must address rebellion and sin. God can't just snap his fingers and make it all go away. Because God is a God of justice. He must answer every sin that's committed both against him and against other people. So what did God do? Well, he sent Jesus. Jesus paid the debt that our sins have accumulated. Jesus took the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. And God offers forgiveness to us. All we have to do is ask. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have something to confess or make right with God, do it today. Do it before one of these means of judgment comes upon you. It's never too late until it's too late. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, reminding you, in case you forgot, that I have a beard.